Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise." But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Well, we all know life is incredibly unpredictable and at times very hard. From the smallest events of life to the largest events So many times they are just far beyond our control. And as I was preparing and thinking on this text for this week, I uh, had to laugh at myself and at my own inability to control even the smallest details of my life. I have a a $20 coffee maker in my office back here that's real fancy. You can program it to make coffee for you so that when you show up, coffee's made for you, right? So um, lots of times when I meet people here in the mornings, I will, the night before, program my coffee maker so that when we show up and we walk in, it smells like coffee, you know, and everything's just ready to go. But the buttons get kind of messed up. I don't know if it's kids, I'm not blaming them, or if it's just me, you know, whenever you need to push the button or something. But you have to be very very careful and check it. So the night before we, I was getting ready to meet someone in the morning, I had, we were leaving at five o'clock. Joe, Joel was with me that day and I went and got the water and put it in and programmed the clock and it was off an hour. So I, I, I moved the hour so that it was set to the right time at five o'clock and it was going to come on at five fifty-five in the morning so that when six came around, it'd be nice and ready. Well, we got here the next morning and come in, unlock, take my coat off, sit down and I'm missing that nice coffee smell in my office. And I turn and I look and the coffee pot's full, but it's stone cold. Because 55 minutes after I left at 5 o'clock, my coffee pot started running. And what was there was 12-hour-old coffee in the coffee pot. And I don't have control at 100% accuracy over a $20 coffee pot. How in the world can I expect... To have, to, to, get it, to have control over all of these innumerable amounts of details that go on in my life. If I can't make that work with 100% accuracy, I have no expectation that on things of such greater significance, how my health turns out, how others and my relationships with them, and all these other scenarios with just thousands of different variables. I mean, that involved one variable of me making sure the time was set right and the on time was set right. Well, okay, more than one. And then the set delay, delay time or brew, come on. There's a few, but in that small event, I, hadn't, I, I, couldn't, I could not perform what I really wanted to perform. I have no expectation that I would be able to get the details of my life to turn out the way that I want them to. And none of us, if we're honest... Have that ability. And you can look back over the past events of your life and you will admit with me there are things I wanted to go a certain way and I am totally different. I'm in a totally different place. 
than where I ever thought I would be. So there's a few reactions we can then have to this reality, right? We can react in a few different ways. One way we can react is with despair. Everything's out of my control. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't make anything happen. And so I guess I'm just basically going to give up on all expectations. Nothing's ever going to go the way that I want it to. I'm going to walk around in despair and depression and just resignment to just everything's out of my hands. Despair is where I'm going to go. That's one option. And some people take that. The pessimist. And I think that there's probably a bit of that that we all deal with from time to time of dealing with despair over things not going the way that we want them to. You can go to despair or you can go into full energy, all out burnout where you're like, things don't go my way. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest all the energy that I can to try to fight those forces and make things go my way. So I'm going to get my planner out. I'm going to just, I'm going to micromanage every single event that I can. And where does that end you? It ends you in burnout because you've invested just loads of energy in trying to get every detail to come out the way you want it to. And then it doesn't. Despair, burnout, those are some options you can pursue at the point of realizing things are out of my hand. But there's a third option. And the third option is to trust yourself to someone who does have control. Not despair, not burnout, but trust in someone who does have control. When we come to a passage like this one this morning, it's just that's the overall message that passages like this always shout at me. They always scream out to me this reality that God knows what's going to happen and he performs it. He knows what's coming down the line. He has a plan and it doesn't fail. I mean, just God never programs his coffee pot and it doesn't come on when it's supposed to. I mean, I know I'm not being, but you know, that's, that's, that's being ridiculous, but that's the reality. To the smallest of details, he never fails to pull off exactly what he wants to have happen. The facts of Christ knowing beforehand what was going to take place should give us great comfort in God's ability to do exactly what he purposes But it isn't just that Jesus knows, like this is happening a few months or so before his crucifixion. He knows this flogging, this this mocking, this shamefully treated, this spitting is coming. He knows this is coming a few months down the road. But that isn't the, the whole span. This isn't just a few months of foreknowledge. Jesus says that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And there are writings 400 years and more older than this event that are going to be fulfilled in the life of Christ. And just to, Jesus has spoken of this um, deliverance over, specifically this is now his third time in the Gospel of Luke. You can look back in Luke chapter 9 just to see them, because they are interesting to read. Luke chapter 9 verse 21 he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. This is after this, the confession at Caesarea Philippi. Tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's 
pretty specific. And you drop down to the end of verse 43 in chapter 9. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Those are two specific references, but there's really seven times we've seen so far. We won't look at all of those of where he's mentioning this coming suffering. Jesus knows what's on his horizon. He knows what's going to happen to him. But it, this, is, this goes back even further than that. If you have your Bible out, flip with me to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 50. And this is on page 726 of your pew Bible. We're going to look at just verse 6. Uh, we could look at several. We're going to look at three places just quickly. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says this, I gave my back, this is Isaiah the prophet speaking, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. 400 years before the time of Christ, the prophet Isaiah is speaking of this time when this servant is going to have his beard ripped out. He's going to be mocked, disgraced, and spit upon. And you flip just a few pages later to chapter 53. This is the suffering servant song. It's an amazing passage of scripture. We'll just read verses 3 through 9 of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, 400 years now before the time of Christ. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Going on in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death. You ever wonder about that weird detail of why Jesus was laid in an unoccupied tomb, a rich man's tomb? Isaiah 53. He made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Likewise, Psalm 22, the last Old Testament. There's, there are literally hundreds of places we could go to look at these sorts of things. But just flip back, lastly, to Psalm 22. Verses 16 through 18. This is page 540 of your pew Bible. For the second, Psalm 22 is what Jesus quotes. If you look at verse 1, this is what Jesus likely quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember him saying that on the cross? That's coming straight from Psalm 22. But you jump down to verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Jesus says, all that is written in the law and the prophets about me must be fulfilled. And what I want us to see, what, what just screams at me when we look at a place like Luke chapter 18 and this admission, this foreknowledge of Jesus is what's going to be happened. This is all planned out, not a few weeks, not even a few months, but hundreds of years in advance. I fail at planning something an hour away from me. That's all of us. God does not fail in bringing his purposes to fruition. The world is truly handled in the way that Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel chapter 4. He says, for his dominion, speaking of God, for his, this is Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is the sovereign of the universe. He, what he has spoken that he will do, he will do. Look at this passage. Jesus knows this is coming. God is the sovereign of the universe. But if you're thinking with me, that isn't necessarily on its face good news when someone is in absolute control. Ultimate authority does not mean good news all the time. Because, let's for instance say you're locked in a room with someone who had ultimate authority over you. They are bigger than you. They are stronger than you. They're going to have their way. And let's say they have ill will towards you. Then being locked in a room with someone who is sovereign over you is not good news, is it? At that moment, you're thinking, I wish I was the sovereign at this point because this person wants to do me harm. What good is ultimate sovereignty and authority if there is no good news with it? But look, look what God does. Just the news that he's sovereign is not by itself good news until you look and see what this God does with his sovereignty. What does he do with this ability to work his purposes? He uses his sovereignty, his control, his authority to suffer in service to sinners. He arranges his sovereign work to save sinners through the suffering and sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And what we see is here is the absolute sovereignty of God to accomplish his purposes and also the love of God that he would go through with what was needed, even at great cost to himself. Through the work of Christ, through his substitution, God remains faithful and just. He's the sovereign, holy God of the universe, dealing out justice, always doing rightly, always doing righteousness, always working the right, just thing. And at the same time, what I quote in Romans 3.25 at our communion sometimes, he's both just, remaining just, 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God is able to do both of these things. He uses his sovereignty, his justice to send Christ to the earth, to live the righteous life we should have lived, die the death that we deserve, take our sin upon himself so that through faith in him we could be reconciled to this sovereign God. He uses his authority and his sovereignty to rescue people who don't deserve to be rescued. That's what God does with his ultimate authority. That's why John exclaims in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has loved us that we should be called the children of God. It's astonishing. What incredible omniscience is the fun word for all-knowing. God is all-knowing. He knows how this is all going to work out. He knows all the details and he sets his plans and his purposes and he accomplishes. What omniscience, what all-knowing, what omnipotence, the fancy word for all-powerful, that not only does he know it and have a plan and want to go a certain way, he has the power to make it happen. Omniscience, omnipotence, all-knowledge, all-power, but also the love, the character of this God that would use this all-knowing, this all-power to rescue rebels like you and me. Now the awkwardness of this passage. The disciples don't see it. Verse 34, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. Luke, I love it, he says it three times. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. There's a little repetition there to make its point of how much they didn't get. They don't grasp what's being said. The meaning is hidden from them. And there are several places in the Gospel of Luke this comes up where they just don't get what Jesus is doing. They, they aren't able to see what's going on. And we ask, why don't they get it? And unfortunately, the Gospel doesn't really give us a, a clear, here's why. We just know that they, they don't. They don't get it until, until after Jesus is resurrected and they, they see him face to face in an instance like at the, uh, the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, which we'll get to in three or four years. Uh, that, that they have this, their eyes are opened and they see. But why don't they see? And I think the answer lies somewhere. It's a mercy. It's God's mercy to us to include this difficulty really getting what God's doing. That the disciples, they walked with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. And yet even they look at what God is doing sometimes and they're like, I don't, I don't get what's going on here. That is, that is God, the Holy Spirit, through the author, Luke, having a great mercy on us for all the times we look around and we think, I don't, I don't know what God's doing here. If, if, and if, if, I, if we can't see what God is doing here, does that mean God isn't doing what he wants? Or does that mean we aren't able to see? When we don't get it, when God's activity is clouded from our eyes, what are we to think? Well, look at the disciples. They walked with Jesus, and it reveals this to us, that though life may not go the way that we think is best, it does not mean that God has lost his way. Though we look, and I can't see it, and man, there are so many times we can make a list of all the things right now I look at, and I think, I don't know. I, I, and we could, you know, of all the things, you know, I don't think, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to go. I, I think something's, something's 
messed up. And I, you know, God, is, it's just, I, I can't make sense of it. Just because life is not going the way that we think is best, it does not mean that God has lost his way. Leon Morris says this in his commentary. He says that in the end, it is not what people please that will be done, but what God pleases that will be done. Though we may be disappointed, God is never dismayed. Though we may despair, God's plan is never disturbed. And though we may not see it our way or going our way, that does not mean that God is thwarted in his plan going his way. This is to be, from this passage, I think uh, one of my favorite pastors speaks of it as a warm blanket at night. The reality that you're able to lay down and though you don't know what's going on and though things don't make sense to you, you're able to lay down and rest under this reality. God has his purposes. They will be fulfilled. And that's good news because this sovereign God who has a purpose and will complete it has reconciled us to himself through the work of Jesus Christ so that we now know his plans towards us are nothing but ultimate love through the work of Jesus Christ. Eventually, the disciples' eyes do get opened, right? They live through the events that Christ was referring to. They experience the resurrection and they see it. But is it the kind of scene that all of a sudden the disciples are like, oh, well, now I understand everything works. Now I get this, this, that. And, you know, their eyes are open and they see Jesus. But is it like all of a sudden they say, oh, well, now I see every single one of these building blocks go into place. I think you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit and you don't see that. They're still, they still don't get what's going on. They still have to have correction. They still don't quite get they see, but they don't see the way they want to see necessarily. But what they see, the book of Acts tells us something different. It isn't that their eyes were open to the perfect understanding of everything that was happening and whatever happened. Their eyes are opened to see the truth of who Jesus is. To see his absolute sovereignty, to see what he has done, and to see his sacrificial love operating on their behalf, thereby giving them confidence that though they can't see how this all works out, they know in a God who does his plan, works his purposes, and have the evidence of who the God who then sent his son to rescue you, you. If you're in this room this morning and you've repented of your sins, you're trusting in Christ. This is the character and this is the disposition of the sovereign of the universe for you. That he is working all things for your good. God, Romans 8, 28. For God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that we all of a sudden get how everything works together. Or that we don't have moments in our life where we look like the disciples and think... I don't know how this fits together. But we also don't go to despair and we don't go to some sort of burnout and trying to make things go our way. Where do we go? We trust in this God who shows his sovereignty, shows his power to accomplish his purposes and shows his incredible love for you in the giving of his son that you might be forgiven of your sins, reconciled to him, and promised eternal life and eternal joy with him forever. The disciples, they see, not that now everything makes sense, 
But they see God for who he is. They see the power and the character of God. Why are they shown that? So they wouldn't drown in despair. So they won't exhaust themselves with burnout. So, but so that they would trust him. What is God calling in this passage this morning? Trust in him. You may be a disciple and looking at multiple things in your life right now. You think, I do not know how these, I do not see clearly what's going on. But you can see some things clearly. This reality, God is both in control and unimaginably kind to sinners by rescuing them and reconciling them to himself. And in that good news, the sovereign God who loves sinners and rescues them, in that good news, we rest. Let's pray. Father, help us. This, this the reality of your sovereignty almost sometimes causes more issues and problems in our minds than it, than it solves at times. But God, I believe it is meant to be and included here in the gospel of Luke for us to settle into, to put under our feet as a firm foundation, to become, like Jesus says, the man who builds his house upon the rock, that Jesus spoke his word, the man who obeys it, who believes it, is the one who builds his house upon a rock, such that when the winds blow, circumstances of life go up and down and toss them this way and that way, their house is not destroyed because of the solid rock that their house is built upon. Help us in this place this morning, God, to see your absolute power, sovereignty, and your goodness in saving sinners and bringing us, reconciling us, adopting us into your family so that we can be confident that that sovereign power, same one that knew hundreds of years beforehand exactly what would happen, that same power now works in our favor and for our ultimate good. And help us, God, to rest there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.